go today is sunday september 9th 2018 and this is episode 225 of the defensive security podcast my name is jerry bell and joining me tonight as always is mr andrew callett hey jerry how you doing today buddy uh so good it hurts how about you <laughs> i'm i'm good i'm good been you know a little busy uh, like you've been just always seems to be something afoot and crazy going on but that, that's that, life in the big city i guess that's right Mm-hmm, Absolutely, mm-hmm. you know the 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 reward for doing a good job is more work. So, <laughs> at least until like you know, eventually you retire. Supposedly, I'm not sure, but that's what I've been told. Yeah, yeah, and, yep. And then you die, and then life, you know, begins again <laughs> with somebody else. So, <laughs> right there you go. So suddenly I'm questioning all of my choices in life. Thanks. Good job. <laughs> And today's uh, <laughs> anyway, whatever the uh, thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers. You're going to need to give me a minute. I'm having an ex- existential crisis over here right now. Yes, yes. I was, I was about to say that you know the the nihilism podcast it will now mm-hmm. now conclude. Uh, okay, crisis is over. We can continue. All right, very good. So, um. Just a reminder that um, I guess coming up in just about a month is DerbyCon, and we will hopefully see you there. Yeah, I uh, found out my time slot for my talk because I was selected to speak, which I'm very honored about. I'm very humbled and afraid of doing, but I uh, I have a great slot. It is the last slot on Sunday right before the closing ceremonies. So clearly they're saving the best for last. That's the only thing I can figure. Uh, so I hope people stick around because it's going to be really lonely if nobody's there. Well, see, I, I can only assume their, their logic is if they put some, they put a lesser speaker in at the last, no one would stick around. But if they put you in at the end, then everybody would have to stick around to see you know, to, to the end of the show. That's, I, I mean, that, I, that I, logic sounds great, except I'm not a good speaker. So up until that point, I was tracking with you just perfectly. Uh, and well, then I realized, no, I suck. So, um, <laughs> no, you're supposed to say you're good. That way, people want to go see you. Well, all right, I'll try really hard to not suck. How's that? That that sounds good. Mm. All right. So, um, yeah. So here we come. Coming yeah, up one month. Absolutely. And uh, we'll be there. Absolutely, going to be a good time. Yeah. And you're bringing uh, one of your offspring, are you not? I'm. My oldest is. Um, I'm. I'm going to be flying in from. Uh, the Northeast, uh, and flying in and out. And then my son, who is in college now, will be driving up uh, to hang out with us. Wow. So, uh, which is, it, 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 you know, for a for a, a newly minted college kid, he must really want to go to DerbyCon because he's skipping out on a whole bunch of stuff that's happening that weekend. So hmm. that's pretty cool. Uh, anyway, so uh, so enough about that. Uh, just, just getting into our stories, there, there's been an incredible amount of stuff hap- kind of released, maybe not necessarily happening, but released over the past week, which I find pretty interesting. A lot of stuff, uh, which I would call follow-ups. Uh, so the, the first thing on the list is a follow-up to the J.P. Morgan Chase breach. Um, I guess it was about four years ago. You know, at the time, um, you know, it was determined that a, an advanced, a highly advanced adversary had stolen 80 plus million uh, customer records from J.P. Morgan Chase. And of course, it was, you know, a, a nation state alleged to be a nation state actor. And then over time, uh, th- there were some indictments. I believe one of the people was in Flo- lived in Florida. Um, and it turned out that the intention behind this breach was to commit securities fraud, right? So basically pump and dump stock scam. 
but but writ large. So so basically, what they apparently what they had done was a um, uh, kind of a, a, a campaign of compromising different banks. Um, apparently, some of which were perpetrated using Heartbleed, which was interesting. It there's no indication, by the way, that J.P. Morgan Chase despite some of the things that are being written in the media that if you read the indictment, there's no indication that JP Morgan Chase was breached using Heartbleed. Um, but there's no indication they weren't either. So I'll leave that there. Um, anyway, they, uh, they, they breached a couple of different banks, apparently used using the funds they collected from one of the, uh, one, uh, an account at, some other bank, not J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, they uh, th- they used that to uh, invest in effectively penny stocks that they pumped to the 83 million J.P. Morgan Chase customers. And you know, and and uh, if you read the indictment, the indictment's I think 46 pages long. It's you know, there's probably about three or four pages that are interesting. The rest is pretty pretty boring unless you like reading the biography of a fbi special agent um not don't my, be jealous I, I know i know whatever so um so so this was basically like a targeted spam campaign almost like spear phishing writ large because they knew they were going after jp morgan's customer list correct so they knew they were investors to, right they, yeah, they, yeah like you know the, these are people who apparently are active investors so you know this can't, is, can't you just buy those lists for like 50 bucks from people like Equifax seems like it. So, so what's <laughs> what's new here is that um, this this uh, Russian person named Andre Turin, I think that's how you would say it, uh, was arrested after being charged by the U.S. Department of Justice. He was arrested in the country of Georgia, not the state of Georgia. He was arrested in the country of Georgia uh, uh, based on a request from the U.S. and was extradited to the u.s and, and is now in uh, custody in new york i believe so uh, they unsealed the indictment against uh, this this uh, mr Turin, and that's uh, that's kind of the new news and it goes through some of the the kind of the technical details he apparently by the way was the technical mind as far as i could tell behind the attack right this the the person down in florida his name was uh, gary salon appears like he was the brains of the operation in terms of coordinating and and um you know figuring out what they were going to do and the the actual hacking apparently was perpetrated by this or allegedly perpetrated by this uh mr turin so interesting to see some of these things coming, you know, kind of coming back around, and and uh, also doubly interesting to see that they um, they managed to get a Russian, um, you know, to to face charges in the U.S. Well, but from you know they got him in Georgia, which is no longer necessarily tightly controlled by Russia. But yes, depends on which part, right? I uh, fair, fair, yeah. All right. Um, so moving on to our next story, another follow-up. This one is from ZDNet, and the title here is U.S. Government Releases Postmortem Report on Equifax Hack. This is a pretty cool, um, I mean, it is cool as it can be given the circumstances of what happened. It's, uh, it's interesting to see some of the inner workings exposed of what actually happened here. Um, now, there's not a ton... You know, there's still a lot of details that are are are, um, are are lacking, and by the way, some of these details don't entirely jibe with what we had previously heard, where where um, a, a specific person was blamed for um, not having. So, so you're saying early facts aren't always accurate? I know. Can you believe that? I'm shocked to hear that. Can you believe that? So, you know, just um, just to recap, unless you've been. You know, in case you've been living under a rock, um, effectively every every uh, American who participates in the economy had like you know effectively all of their information stolen. So, a hundred and almost one hundred fifty million people um, were, had you know basically everything 
stolen and uh is is most people remember this was stolen using the struts vulnerability and it was uh it was a, a hack against a dispute portal so equifax as a you know as a, as a credit monitoring company apparently has a portal where you can log in as a you know as as a subject of uh you know of, of of a record of theirs, you can go in and dispute certain aspects of what's in your credit report. And apparently that is the system that was attacked. So the timeline kind of looks like this on, on March 8th, the vulnerability was disclosed. Um, the U S cert later that day sent out a, a, a letter, you know, notice basically to the, to the public warning about this, uh, Equifax, Internally notified their uh, their teams that they needed to patch. Oh, but the email list was not up to date. But the email list was not up to date. That's it correct. It didn't have all the sysadmins on it. So step number one in the chain of events. Correct. Or I should say air chain. That's right. That's right. So, um, so then uh, a couple of days later, it was on uh, March 10th. Equifax apparently saw activity of who would later become the, the the threat actor here scanning their systems for this particular vulnerability, but apparently there it wasn't acted upon then. Um, a couple of days later, on March 13th, those actors returned, and this time they so, were... So on March 10th, they scanned. Correct. Equifax thought they were good. But the scans found a server that wasn't patched. Um, well, and so got in. yeah, but that, so there's there's two different scans going on. One is the scans by the bad guys, and that happens on March 10th, right? And, and, it, and the way I read this, that's also when they gained access. It was on March 10th. Uh, March 13th was when they gained access. Not to argue with you, but. I understood that like they got it on the 10th, they came back on the 13th and actually with a plan. Correct. They came back on yep. the 13th with, you know, with, with their exploit code. I mean, with, with, okay. uh, with the, the tools and, and got it. I yep. misread it. I, I thought they got, I thought they got in on the 10th and then did, did nothing until the 13th. And on the 13th is when they started, uh, you know, no my, stuff. My read is that the bad guys, um, recognized that the server was exploitable on the 10th and then they came back on the 13th with some tooling that would allow them to get shell and whatnot. Okay. And and then off they were you know, off to go to the races. Now, it's a little interesting the way that the this particular article is organized because um, that they they insert in here that Equifax itself had run a scan, a vulnerability scan of their systems uh, on as far as I can tell, they don't give the specific date, but they said it was a week after the tenth. So I would assume that was about the seventeenth. So, on in that particular scan, they don't detect that they don't find this server as being vulnerable. Yeah, I I, I read it as a week after the cert advisory. So oh, was it, okay, when, so that would have been the fifteenth. Yeah. So right. So that that's an interesting point. Just to spend a moment on cert comes out with this concern and. And they don't do a scan for it, if all the details are here, until a week later. That is something I think they could definitely uh, improve upon and, and companies should go faster on, at least uh, scanning your internet-exposed devices. Yeah. Now, in, in their defense, and I, I did not like, – I could have been a better podcast host and looked this up, but you know, sometimes you, are, you as a customer are beholden to when your vulnerability scan provider – has um you know has support for a particular vulnerability that is very true as well that is very true so um it, it depends on the scan right i mean you could do a scan for version numbers or it, it was a, you're right there's a bunch of different nuance but what's interesting about this scan is it did not uh, alert on the dispute portal as vulnerable correct now i i have a theory on on this and i think we may have actually talked about it in a previous show but you know struts as a as a component can be integrated in a bunch of different ways and, and kind of by default it would, it would show 
um, you know, in a, in a particular directory or in, in a in a particular way. But that's not the only way to integrate it. And right. so my my read is that this dispute portal may have integrated struts in a way that the vulnerability scanner wasn't set up to detect. That's it's my, not like a discrete package running on a discrete port right. that you can query for a header and know immediately. Correct. Or log in and dump the packages and stall it or whatever. Yeah, it, it may be very difficult for some scanners to pick up, which is a kind of a dirty little secret of some of the vulnerability scanning tools out there. Yeah, and and you know it's this is um this is I I think why app scanners are often kind of in a distinct class from vulnerability scanners because you know app scanners tend to be a lot more obnoxious and noisy and aggressive than vulnerability scans are so um although, I mean even though they kind of do the same thing uh, that so anyway interesting stuff um let's see so once the bad guys were on this system, uh, there were apparently three databases actually on this uh, dispute portal. Apparently, it wasn't all that interesting, but they were able to get to gather credentials from this server, and that server had network access to um, some number, uh, some unknown number of other servers that had a total of forty-eight databases, and they spent the next seventy-six days running 9,000 queries and exfiltrating data. Now, what it's, it's kind of interesting. The way this was discovered was a, apparently um, Equifax was instrumented to be monitoring for data exfiltration, but their DLP system, and I, I'm, I'm inferring here because it doesn't go into this level of detail, but I'm inferring that their, that their, uh, their DLP system... Uh, had a had a certificate problem and was not able to do um, you know, decryption of outbound SSL traffic or TLS traffic. Yeah, because they were running this over HTTPS. Correct. And they were doing it, uh, sizing it in such a way to make it look not too apparent. Uh, and so uh, whether it was their proxy, whether it was their DLP, the way I read it, yeah, normally it has the whatever the self-signed cert is or trusted cert uh, that's loaded on their machine so they can do an interception and decode and look at uh, encrypted app on traffic. Now, what would have likely happened here is either it would have decoded it uh, or decrypted it and inspected it and hopefully caught that this was uh, information or potentially the bad guys were not using that certificate. Uh, and then you can flag on, hey, I can't decrypt this traffic. It's not using the right certificate. But it looks like the cert was expired for 10 months. And so either the alerts were ignored or it wasn't able to actually look in the traffic and there was no alert being flagged by anybody or they just missed it or whatever. But it's interesting how that little error in their process led to this sort of issue as well. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's we talk about assume breach. We talk about, hey, uh, you know, spot people when they're exfiltrating and moving laterally because you can't always stop them from getting in. Well, here they unfortunately shot themselves in the foot for reasons we don't have the full details of by not keeping one of their key systems accurate and up to date. And to me, I think this is a common problem. I think this happens fairly often. Uh, so then the question becomes, you know, do you have anything to test that? Do you have anything to on a regular basis trigger and if it's not triggering, know that it's not triggering. You know, how do you know your systems are working the way they're supposed to be working on an automated fashion? And that's not an easy question to answer, but would it probably help these guys? Yeah, it, it, exactly. So they um, apparently this was detected once, not because they found anything wrong with the the breached systems, but because they were doing something on that on that. Um, I guess it's a DLP or proxy server. And, and recognized that the certificate was expired and they fixed that problem and, and then allegedly suddenly discovered that the, this data was being exfiltrated and the rest is is history you know you're on an you're on an, an interesting point um i i've been kind of ha i have this this kind of loose rough thought in my mind you know in in the world of of software development you have these you know kind of automated regression tests whenever you you, know, you you add some feature or component into a, a, a you know a, into your software, and it seems to me like 
you know, maybe from an infrastructure and particularly security infrastructure perspective, it makes sense for us to to adopt a similar kind of thing. Like if you're going to put some new piece of security technology in, like as you do that, you um, you design some kind of ongoing test to ensure the efficacy of it. I mean, that's like I said, it's a it's a it's a it's a rough thought right now, but um, something to explore, I guess. So anyway, okay. yep. in, interesting, uh, interesting follow-up. Next follow-up, um, this is uh, yet another indictment from the Department of Justice here in the U.S. This comes from ZDNet. Title is Phishing Alert, North Korea's Hacking Attacks. Show your email is still the weakest link. Um, this, by the way, this story, by the way, is is garnered a lot of interesting discussion and debate in the security industry um, or security community, I should say, partly because there's a lot of people in the security industry who are former, former, um, you know, former military, former intelligence agents. And, and so that, you know, the deal here is that a North Korean person named uh, Park Jin Hyak, I think is how you would say it, probably not how you would say it, uh, allegedly a member of the Lazarus group, uh, perpetrated, allegedly according to this indictment, um, the attack on Sony, the attack on Sony Pictures that wiped wiped them out, um, the attack on the Bank of Bangladesh uh, that uh, attempted to steal a billion dollars, ended up stealing $81 million, and also uh, WannaCry. So among among others, but those were the most um, the most notable. Now I will say, when the whole Sony hack thing happened, and a lot of attribution was being pointed at North Korea, I was skeptical. I admit it, I was skeptical. I didn't think it was North Korea, so it looks like I was wrong. Well, you know, it. <laughs> hey, I'm admitting it publicly. I was wrong, but you know, I, I still often feel that when governments are playing their games of international uh, competition and cooperation and statesmanship and such, uh, I would not be surprised if certain allegations of attribution are done for political reasons. And uh, I don't know. It's uh, It just felt very weird to me when that whole thing came out so quickly and, and so vehemently that it was North Korea. But hey, no, hey, nothing says that this indictment also isn't just doubling down on that de- deception. But we'll take it at face value and say, hey, I guess it was North Korea. Yeah, and the, um, the, the indictment, by the way, is a stunning 172 pages long. I, I, um, I've only made it to about page 50. <laughs> so uh, I don't know what, what is yet to come. But um, it, it's it's an interesting. I would say, you know, other than the fact that uh, this this person is alleged to have been part of this large conspiracy to perpetrate all these different crimes, um, the, the, there were kind of two interesting things. One was a terrible AppSec fail. What you know, and and I say that because if there's there it's not in this particular article but there's been other articles written about this kind of mapping out the the structure of um of social media and email accounts and different things that kind of led you know that that, that tie all these different type these different attacks together back to the same group and to some extent to the same person like thousands of email accounts and hundreds of of um of social media accounts and 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 on and on, um, and and the other the other side is the way this were these were perpetrated were, were just bland phishing emails. Yeah, but but a lot of them. But well but, researched. A, but a lot of them, and they did put in a ton of research. I mean, we talked about that on the last show about how. Um, yep. You know that uh, Fin Seven, I think, was the name of the group. You know, they put a lot of they put maybe not a lot, but they put some effort into researching their victims and that effort was paying off pretty well for them. And in this case, you know, they, they, um, they used, as far as I could tell, like with, uh, with Sony, they used kind of successive waves of phishing to get more and more and more information because as you will recall, 
in the in in the malware that was used in Sony, a lot of it was hard coded with with credentials and whatnot, and and so it was it was quite obvious that uh, whoever the attacker was had intimate knowledge of uh, of the environment and the technology that was used and the accounts and passwords and whatnot. And that, by the way, was one of the reasons it was strongly suspected that uh, it was an insider. Um, you know, because there was, it appeared to have so much inside, you know, there, there seemed to be a lot of inside knowledge. Yeah. Hard-coded passwords, hard-coded IP ranges, right? Uh, a bunch of very specific, customly targeted stuff. But hey, if you've, if you've sat around and done a lot of internal reconnaissance, I guess that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I would say that there's, um, that parts of the, the indictment are pretty interesting to read. A lot of it is just, you know, mind-numbingly boring. Um, I, going back to the controversy a little bit, um, one of the one of the big controversies right now is that that the U.S. has criminally charged a foreign government agent with a crime, and so there, there's a there's some concern that doing that will create a you know, a, a a bad consequence, you know, bad precedent, right? And because all foreign governments take actions against, you know, all other foreign, you know, many other foreign governments. And if we, you know, if we, if we all start kind of tracking back down to the individual person who took some action on behalf of the government and then criminally charge them, that create, you know, that causes a Yeah, a it's kind of like when we go back to, you know, espionage in general. Correct. Uh, you know, uh, countries spying other countries, and let, let's just pick on Russia and the U.S. as, as two primary spy counter spy sort of situations. Especially throughout most of the Cold War, you know the typical game was, yeah, we know we're both doing it to each other. If we catch your guys, uh, we're gonna put them in jail, uh, or we're gonna deport them, or eject them, or we're gonna trade them for our spies. But you know, the, the game is not necessarily an individual game so much as it is a. Uh, you know, a state level game and these are pieces on the board. Uh, and you know, everybody knew the score. Now we seem to have a different set of rules. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's a, it's a tough situation because it's not, I would say it's not without precedent when, when foreign agents commit a crime and I'm thinking about like, um, you know, assassinations or, or other kinds of crimes now, granted, you can't equate an assassination with what was done here, even though it was really, you know, these were significant attacks. It wasn't at the same level. But, you know, we have seen in those cases uh, foreign agents being charged. So it's not, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's an interesting yeah, it, situation. Yeah, it's tough, especially when these, like you said, foreign agents acting on behalf of their government. Right. Uh, you know, uh, this stuff gets weird. You know, it's this is how you get into things like what's a war crime and what's what are the rules of war and what is, uh, you know, this is probably way beyond my pay grade to to eloquently and accurately discuss. But it is interesting to watch. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, so the the last thing on the uh, on the list for today, and it's actually a, a kind of a package of four different things, is Verizon. Released their, uh, or at least part of their 2018 data breach digest report, and my recollection, by the way, of previous digest reports were that they were kind of one monolithic report, but this time right. they're um, they, they've broken it up into segments, and so now they're like like individual case studies, I guess. And so, how is this different from the other big Verizon breach report? Well, so the 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 data the DBIR the data breach investigation report is a um, it's kind of a holistic quasi statistical analysis of trends, and this is I would I would say this is them taking a and you know it's hard to say if these are actual in, you know incidents or if they were a composite of different kinds of incidents of the same nature, um, but it's it's you know one specific type of incident and they talk about it in a little more detail so way i've looked at this in the past and we've actually covered this in the past is 
and I think you hit it on the head, these are representative incidents that they anonymize and talk through uh, the narrative of the incident, the response, the lessons learned, the mitigations. Uh, it really drills into individual, in theory, incidents uh, that we can learn from, which I think is very, very cool and very useful. Uh, but yeah, they used to release this as one monolithic report, uh, and now it looks like they are breaking out into, at the moment, they have four individual reports of four individual stories, but more are going to go live on the website as they publish them, it looks like. Uh, allegedly. <laughs> so, you know, before we get deep, deep into the details, I will tell you, I find these incredibly valuable. I find them valuable to send around to my staff. I think they are very good at giving a narrative that is relatively executive friendly of how real breaches are happening in the real world uh, in a sort of interesting to read you know, walkthrough with good takeaways and lessons learned. Indeed. So the first, the first uh, of four is titled credential theft, the monster cash. And, it, you know, again, we, we don't know who the victim is here, but this is uh, the result of their, uh, of Verizon's incident response activities so apparently they were called out to help a customer who they who, who they describe as being in an industry that is frequently targeted by espionage-oriented threat actors who rely heavily on phishing emails as an initial vector. And um, so they were they were called in. There's there's no actual description of what the initial problem that that they were called in to uh, uh, help with was, but upon investigation they found that there. Uh, somewhere on some quote darknet forum, there were 500 corporate user accounts and passwords for sale associated with this particular company. And they 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 go on to point out that this is not an uncommon thing. That you know, there's lots of different ways for people to to collect um, you know password usernames and passwords, and then uh, and then try to turn around and, and sell those, and then some other. Uh, some other bad guy, you know, uses those for their purpose. It's the, um, you know, it's the whole economy, underground economy, if, as it were. So uh, apparently while they, while they were out investigating one incident, another part of the same company called and engaged um, the Verizon for a different incident, also involving a compromised account. And uh, in the ensuing investigation, they found that um, one one or more of the company's email accounts had been compromised and was being used to send around, you know, what they describe as internal phishing emails, which is an interesting concept. And I have been seeing this more and more. And I, you know, I'm going to get derided for saying this, but I, I see it as largely um, associated with the move to email, you know, kind of quote outside the firewall, you know, so, so where you have uh you know, you got your O three sixty five or your webmail hanging out on the internet. But yeah, I mean, once you're in, it doesn't matter, right? If you're on somebody's workstation, it doesn't matter where that that mail server lives. No, I know. I'm I'm just saying that that it's it's an interesting. Co I mean, it maybe is. I'm seeing a trend that's that's irrelevant here, but uh, it wouldn't you know be the first time today. So the other thing that I find interesting is that. It, do we we almost need like a new term for this internal lateral phishing attack? You know, like uh, I don't know. I something I'll come. I'll try to come up with something you know catchy. Because yeah, so phishing, you know, phishing attack kind of inf implies that it's not coming from a legitimate source. Right. But in this particular case, it is coming from a legitimate source. It's just not the specific person hitting the send button that you think. Right. It is. Yeah, and it's and it's not even necessarily like a business email compromise spoof because it's not really spoofed. It's, you know, it's, it's a malicious outsider hijacking the internal account to send emails. So I don't know. It's coming that, from inside the, the it's network. Coming, the phone calls are coming from inside the house. <laughs> you have to be old to get that joke. Uh, we'll have to come up, I don't know, like, like jumping fish or uh, uh, yeah. fly fishing or I don't know. I'll have to come up with some sort of, trendy name that won't catch on and somebody else will name it better and I'll just be sad. 
Yes, indeed. So they uh, they have a couple of recommendations here, which I thought were were you know were, were fairly good. Assign all users separate, unique accounts. Don't use generic or shared accounts or passwords. That's you know, pretty pretty basic. Pretty basic. Pretty common. Set first time passwords to a unique value for new users. Require password lengths of at least eight characters, preferably more. Uh, change user passwords immediately after first use and then uh, at least every 90 days, which is interesting. Which flies in the face Perfect. of NIST's current That's right. brouhaha. But I concur, right? This is a great example of why I disagree with NIST. So for those who don't know, NIST says it's no longer necessary to change passwords uh, because that will choose cause people to choose bad passwords, blah, blah, blah. Uh, here's a great example. Passwords get leaked. So you've got to have some time constraint on that or go to two factor and then it doesn't matter. So, you know what? I, 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 I'm, I'm seeing a, a, I'm seeing a, a headline for a story. NIST says it's okay to not change your underwear. Cause you know, passwords, the, the, the historical guidance is passwords are like underwear, you know, you got to keep it private and you got to change them. NIST is saying you don't have to change your underwear. Can, can we move on please? Sure. Um, Block historical passwords from being used for at least the previous four. uh, They love the word utilized. Uh, Utilized passwords and set the lockout threshold for six times. Remove slash disabled inactive user accounts for at at least every 90 days, which is an interesting thing. I see a lot of organizations that don't actually do that. Immediately revoke access for terminated users. Which is, I mean, nothing's too stunning there, right? That's basic nope. hygiene. That's nope. that's block and tackling stuff. Well, nope. they, they did down in the in the lessons learned. They did point out that uh, it's a good idea, and, and I know this is something we've talked about in the past. But it's a good idea to, and I suspect this is probably a bit of a salesy pitch for them, right? But to tie your threat to tie threat intelligence into your incident response, so that you have some idea of, you know. Who, if you can figure out who the likely attacker is, you you will have some idea of what their normal, uh, you know, scope of techniques are, and be able to, um, you know, to to look for adjacent types of attacks. Blah blah blah. So moving on. <laughs> you should be in sales. I know. Insider threat: the card shark. So um. So this is another report. This is a sep- the next ne- the second of four reports. Okay. Uh, Verizon was called in to investigate. A, a, I guess it's a bank um, who was experiencing a bunch of fraud loss from ATM machines. That was redundant, wasn't it? Um, and uh, upon arriving at the scene, they noticed that they were not um, they were not questioned when they got to the building, and they were allowed, I guess, to roam freely, and they thought that was kind of odd. Um, they did some investigation and learned that there was a, uh, a suspicious system on the network that was not recognized. It wasn't, um, you know, it was unknown. It wasn't a, a, wasn't one of the company systems on their, uh, apparently on their, their CDE, their card and, data holder environment. And detected by their SIM. If Correct. I recall correctly, yes, that's right. So that it's not like they found it; it was detected by the internal systems and just either missed or ignored. Correct. They later in the article they actually indicate that it was ignored. They didn't have anybody looking at it. Uh, so, um, upon further investigation, they found that the um, that the data center where this card data holder environment resided was in a um, kind of basically a locked room that just had a standard key lock and uh, and by the time the investigators got there the system was you know had actually been placed done its damage and had been removed and so they didn't have any they really didn't have anything to analyze they you know they could see they could see evidence of that system uh, initiating, you know, initiating logins. So it had apparently collected credentials. Not, not really sure how that exactly happened, uh, but it co- collected credentials and then had logged into si- other systems on the network, and uh, and that was how they they perpetrated their their crime. Again, coming from inside the network. 
uh, you know, their their recommendations here were obviously physical security is an important you know, important issue, but um, making sure that if you have a sim, well, one you should have a sim, but if you if you do that, somebody's actually monitoring it because why have it if you're not going to monitor it, right? And then uh, and then train your employees. Yeah, and I would say make sure your alerts in the sim are being tuned properly so they don't get alert fatigue. Yep. yep. So the third of four scenarios is uh, called cryptojacking, cryptocurrency, mining, malware, the peeled onion. Verizon couldn't resist jumping on the blockchain, blockchain train. Absolutely. Like, you got to, you got, I mean, this is 2018. You got to do it, man. No, but I mean, it's, it's legit. We're seeing a ton of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're not, if you're not, getting crypto lockered for for ransom you know you're you're getting crypto minored sucking your your power um and and that's effectively what they saw here so uh, one of their customers called them out they felt confident that um you know basically they were seeing they were seeing evidence of of black traffic uh on uh, at their firewalls so they knew they had a problem uh you know on their network but they thought it was contained because they were blocking, um, they, they were blocking Tor. This particular um, crypto miner was you know, was apparently using Tor for its command and control. Um, it, upon further investigation, they found that while the firewalls were blocking most of the Tor entry nodes, they weren't blocking them all, and so uh, it, things were still happening. And then there was also a mining pool that they were not blocking, which was apparently not being detected and that communication was happening successfully. Um, in this, in this particular case, it's, there's, I don't think there was any indication of exactly how, um, the initial infection happened, but they did detect that the malware was moving laterally in their environment using CV 2017-0143, which, you know, we all know is is pretty popular Windows, uh, you know, Windows SMB execution vulnerability uh, that the customer thought they had patched, um, but apparently uh, they didn't patch, or at least they didn't consistently patch, and so that kind of leads to some interesting uh, recommendations and lessons learned, like. Conduct regular security assessments, evaluate defensive security architecture based on sandboxing, web browser separation and virtualization of for select activities, establish a vulnerability patch management program, apply security patches soon. You know, I, I would say and, and I I think we see this a lot, like with Equifax and, and probably this particular company too, they would all say they have that. Right? Yeah, I mean, they the, the trouble I have with this particular one, I don't disagree with the recommendations, but they're they're fairly generic. And you know, what does success look like when you start talking about that kind of stuff? Yeah, and it's a it's almost like a platitude. And you know, every, it, what company doesn't have a patch management program? It's 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 all in the details. Like you know, right. it's you have a crappy patch management program. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would almost rather say something like, make sure your patch management program is 98% effective within one week or something like that, I think is a much more actionable target than make sure you patch. Well, yeah, duh. Right, right. Uh, let's see, employee enterprise and host-based antivirus solutions with up-to-date signatures to detect and eradicate threats as they arise. I think that indicates that they were not running antivirus on on their systems. You know, the the you know, while this is good advice, it's you know, it's, uh, again this you know, the success of modern attacks is is largely based on the fact that antivirus is just trivially easy to to circumvent. Well, and here's the interesting thing, whether we're talking about, you know, crypto jacking or not, it's still malware. It's the same set of problems about how do you stop malware from getting on your systems. What the payload did is somewhat irrelevant, aside from perhaps catching some TTPs or exfiltration activity. But you could replace crypto jacking with ransomware and have the exact same set of recommendations or a worm, you know, that wasn't targeted at a specific port or something and have the exact same set of recommendations or whatever, because uh, 
it's the same intrusion vectors in general yep. that you're trying to fight. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not taking away from it. I mean, I have big props for this, for these reports and I think they're great and I, I'm, I recommend them heartily, but it's tough because sometimes we get caught up in the sexy nature of the payload and forget that the threat vector and the infection vector is pretty much the same. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. I, I, I would say it, I would carry it a little bit further and say, it's, not hard to take a look at these recommendations and say, you know, established vulnerability patch program. Yep. Got that done. You know, use antivirus. Yep. Got that done. And, and, and there's no context of, you know, is it appropriate? Like, is it working? Does it, you know, does it do the job? Is it actually effective? Do you have antivirus in all your systems? Do you have an antivirus that's actually likely going to catch stuff? Um, you know, and, and is your patch management program actually making sure things are patched and, and so on. And, and I think that's the, that's my concern with some of these, uh, you know, with, with some of these recommendations, it, it you run the risk of um, kind of underplaying or, or feeling like you, you've already got this stuff done, right? False this, sense of security. Yeah, this yeah. wouldn't happen to me because I've got that. I've got antivirus. I've got a patch program. I'm good. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. But it's also tough for them to make very specific recommendations because every organization is a little different. Fair enough. Fair enough. But that's why we're here exactly. to add our color commentary. Exactly. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not proposing that there's anything wrong with the way they wrote this. I'm just I'm saying from the perspective of a of a reader, I think we fall into this, you know, into this, like you said, false sense of security that, that, you know, we're good. So just carrying on with their recommendations for critical systems and servers, deploy file integrity monitoring, application whitelisting, intrusion prevention, and disallow internet access. They say internet browsing. I'm going to, I'm going to go further and say internet access. Uh, and and also, by the way, I'm going to go even further than that. Disallow access, network access to anything that has internet access from your important stuff. No, I know, like that's crazy and stuff. I can think of some exceptions to that rule, but we're yeah, we'll, we'll spare the audience for that debate for another call. All right, uh, block and or alert on internet connections to cryptocurrency mining pools, including include Tor networks unless valid business reason not to do so. I would say, you know, if you if you have a valid business reason for using Tor, you should probably, you know, do do. I mean, I can't imagine that's a mainline requirement. You probably want to put that into a you know, some kind Dude, of a pen. The best llama porn is on Tor. Come on. Well, fair enough. You're right. Uh, to the extent possible, remove local admin rights for standard use user uh, use for web browser activity and force escalation. That, by the way, is becoming a really important. Um, thing it's this has been advice for a long long time uh but i i would say it's it's one of those things that's becoming more relevant than ever uh let's see um they have more uh be vigilant for anomalous activity such as sharp rises in cpu usage or network egress ingress traffic volumes monitor firewalls and network appliance logs uh block access to command and control servers at the firewall that says that you have to know what those are. Uh, deploy group policy objects to block known malicious executable files and disable macros. Perform malware analysis to understand malware functionality. That's certainly within the reach of most companies, right? Um, conduct periodic threat hunting activities across the network to locate and identify any undetected cyber threat activity. Evading traditional cybersecurity controls and create an incident response playbook. So moving on to the last, the fourth out of four, third-party Palooza, the minus touch. Um, so this is a, a fairly, I would say, simple uh, incident without a whole lot of context of exactly what happened, but basically customer had uh, systems at a co-location provider and they needed to to perform incident response. The um, you know, the, the investigators coordinated with the colo provider to get a copy of a 
a disk image and you know they were not allowed on site that's against their rules which is not an uncommon thing uh, a few days later the drive shows up and of course it is blank and oopsie and so the 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 point there is if you don't have all this stuff well coordinated and you know who to contact and exactly the right words to say your investigation is very likely to um, to suffer some unneeded uh, delays, which which could cost you some valuable time. I'm going to go farther, by the way, and say, um, you know, this is a this is not just a problem in colo providers. This is a big problem in cloud providers. Um, so what what do they think happened here? Like why why did it show up zeroed? They made the wrong image. They um, they did it wrong. They wiped it by accident. It's not exactly stated, but the, it sounds like the um, the they the kind of think that the person who was doing the image didn't actually do anything. They, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, job's done, boss. Right. Here's your hard drive. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, um, that is all the time we have for this week. I um, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you found it useful. If you did, give us some love on uh, on iTunes. It helps us out. Uh, anything else that you wanted to uh, to close with, Mr. Callet? No, I'm looking forward to seeing everybody at DerbyCon. And uh, if you're coming to Hacker Halted in Atlanta this week, I will not probably not be there. My day job keeps me pretty hopping. But uh, safe travels. Enjoy the show. And thanks so much for listening. And uh, yeah, I, you ahead. know what? I actually may be at Hacker Halted. I, I, no I, I don't know. I, I don't think I'll be there the entire time. I will probably have meetings on and off, but I, I'm intending to go. I have tickets and wow. uh, I have uh, one of my employees is speaking and another one is flying in from a different country to attend. So it's, you know, it's an opportunity to, to get to see my, my team. Um, uh, just a, a reminder, you can find the, the links to the stories we talked about on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me at Malicious Lincoln. <clears throat> By the way, I'm going to add a new one today. Oh, yeah? Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, a while ago, I started this Mastodon server, infosec.exchange. So <clears throat> go to infosec.exchange. It's kind of like Twitter, uh, except that the timeline is in order and there's no ads. So I, I don't know if I can handle that sort of, you know, newfangled hippiness. I know, I know. So, All right. So there you go. So what was that again? Infosec.exchange. Infosec.exchange. That's right. And and it'll tell you how to sign up there. Correct. Excellent. Join the party. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week, and we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Bye.